Welcome to Making Waves, a show about sound art, produced by New Adventures in Sound Art. I'm your host, Darren Poplin. Today I have a special edition following up with participants from the annual Reve broadcasts. Reve is a 24-hour broadcast of daybreak sounds that occurs at the beginning of May every year. In this 90-minute episode, I'll be talking in the last half hour with sound artist Mike Bullock, who operates an open microphone live stream from his home in Florence, Massachusetts. An open microphone live stream is something that would be similar to a webcam, except it's for sound that's being broadcast from the environment. You can hear Mike Bullock's stream by visiting locusonus.org and locating Florence, Massachusetts on their sound map. The first hour of the show will feature Zach Poff, who produced the Pond Station live stream that continually broadcasts underwater sound from a spring-fed pond that is located on the Way Farm property. Pond Station can be heard online at wayfarm.org or in the local area close to Way Farm in Accra at 1620 a.m. Our discussion with Zach started off on the topic of bats, which is an interest that he shares with Mike Bullock. thinking about bats especially which is something that I'm more and more fascinated by especially the way that they sort of coexist with humans on this this other literal strata right they're like above us both in frequency and like physically in the air above us and I'm always amazed when I'm out and even like here in in like Brooklyn at Prospect Park and you hear like planes going by People are barbecuing. There's like loud radios everywhere. There's sirens going off. It's like it's so far from a, a sort of biophony. And then you tune in with the bat detector and you're like, oh, shit, there's like 50 bats circling above us going about their day in this like pristine frequency range where almost none of the anthropogenic noise seems to be reaching up there, at least according to the microphones. Uh, so I really kind of I'm super fascinated by the sort of relationship there between the the sort of urban possibilities of, of bats as this sort of bi- secret biophony that's just chilling there, you know? Plus, at least around here, um, they're, they're not always like cave bats. A lot of them are like tree-dwelling bats in this in my, our particular region right here in New York. Um, so uh, that basically means a lot of them are like stuck to the side of buildings all the time um, or like hiding in practically in plain sight you know like little clumps of leaves on the side of a tree uh, and they'll spend a long time like that and we walk by them every day and you know i'm no um biologist but there's something fascinating there to me about the ways that we can coexist in in and certainly there's a plenty of human problems you know human friction with with bats and we haven't been kind to them as a species like with every other species uh, but there's something about the sort of exoticism of this flying, invisible, inaudible thing that's actually right, you know, 10 feet above our heads half the time. That's very, I find that to be like an interesting kind of learning moment. You know, when, I, when I'm in the park and I hand the bat detector to some random stranger and I say, like, you see that little flutter up in the sky that you can barely see? Well, that's like, you know, the, this couple of bats have been orbiting us for the last 20 minutes and we didn't notice. Have you uh, tried with using an ultrasonic microphone instead of a bat detector, whether there's more competing noise or anything like that? I mean, I don't have like a legit ultrasonic mic, 
but I have the um, the same sort of MEMS capsules that are used in a lot of those mics, and I'll I rig that up to a, just an, a sound devices recorder that'll do 192k. So I don't know anything above you know whatever that is 50 40 something kilohertz. Um, but at least in that range, I mean, there's not much above the noise floor of the the mics. Um, so I, I don't know. I mean, bats are pretty loud. So maybe I'm just in a different sort of uh, magnitude in terms of signal and noise. But, uh, you know, I mean, rotating machinery and things like that is, is pretty obnoxious up there. But I don't know. Most of that stuff, I think humidity affects it a lot. You get a lot of damping just with distance. You know, the ultrasound falls off a lot a lot faster because it's sort of so high frequency and you know it, it's impeded a lot more by all the sort of squishiness of the air around us um so maybe but it seems to me like wow i mean if you take just a normal you know full spectrum recording which is what i'm usually doing with either these mems caps or like little little tiny electrets and um you just sort of split them into a couple frequency ranges and slow them down and it's it's night and day, you know, above 25, 30 kilohertz, you're pretty much in the clear. Clear of urban noise, you mean? Yeah. I mean, admittedly, I'm not like on a major intersection or something. I mean, it, it could be that there's automobile traffic and stuff. If you're right next to it, puts out a lot of ultrasound, but it doesn't seem like it. It seems to me like you got to get in pretty close proximity to mechanical and electronic noisemakers to really hear a whole lot in into the ultrasound range right so they they uh they're able to camp out there and i guess that's why they get such good signal to noise response they're they're producing high energy sounds in that range because you would need to be projecting them really strongly in order to bounce off surfaces because like you mentioned the dissipation is a bigger factor yeah, it's real crazy. I mean, how loud those little critters are, you know, like it's one of those things where there's nobody around and you turn the gain up all the way and then you you actually, you know, you get a maybe you see a bat or something. It makes you remember to look down at the meters and you're clipping, you know, just that they're they're kind of all or nothing. You know, they're, if they're anywhere near you, they're like 120 dB of of ultrasounds like spraying all over the all over the place. Um, yeah, I mean, it's it's interesting. I've read. I've read a lot about them and it, it does seem like a real balancing act in terms of like energy consumption because they're really, you know, they're really, they're flying, which is already really energy intense. And then they're making these really loud noises all the time. So they're, they, they go through these stages as they're flying, you know, there are these sort of like general autopilot navigation things that are every X amount of milliseconds. And then when they see something, when they hear something interesting, they'll switch to this other much more um, shorter pulses that are much closer together in time. And then when they really get like right on the edge of a bug or something like that, then it's almost, it almost goes off of the, the meters. It's just like this, these very small, but extremely fast, uh, you know, even if you slow them down 10 times, they still almost blur together in the spectrogram as one sort of haze of, of pulses. They're, it's really amazing. They're, and they can adapt when there's more than one of the same species. They'll actually kind of frequency modulate their calls so they don't confuse their, their neighbor as they're flying nearby. But, you know, otherwise the frequency ranges are supposed to be pretty um, species-specific. So if you, you can sort of look at the spectrograph and there'll be a certain kind of 
boomerang shape to the to the to the trace and you look at like the sort of lower half where most of the energy is and most of the time it's like oh well that particular species has that particular you know center frequency um but then when you get a couple of them together they'll start like you see them in the spectrograph they start kind of stair-stepping around it's very um they've been at it for a long time so are they like dialoguing with each other or are they like if i if i want to talk to that species do i go into a different range yeah i don't know how much of it is like a a desire to clear your own channel or a desire to kind of make sure you can have a conversation you know it's it's a, there's a certain dichotomy there that's kind of fascinating when you get bunches of them i've never been in a place where there's you know like a sort of cave emergence right there's that place in either new mexico or texas or something where um there's there's a bat conservation group that like bought this whole area and it's this famous cave and you know certain times of year at exactly the certain time of night you'll just see this burst and it, the sky turns black and there's like you know five hundred thousand bats so the i have no idea what that would sound like from an ultrasound point of view with all of them <laughs> trying to figure out how to navigate and what the hell's going on <laughs> Well, I guess they're used to these dense situations like that. Um, yeah. Or that biologically that would be their, what they came from, maybe. Yeah. And so uh, where are you headed with this? Is just experimenting right now and, and, uh, and in terms of listening to them and, and understanding them? Or is there a, a, um, an outcome that the public might uh, want to be uh, aware of? Right now, my my sort of sketches about bat-related projects are perhaps less about working with the recordings of the bats and perhaps more about creating ultrasound pulses in my environment. And sort of, you know that Lucier piece, Vespers, where you know, they've got these clicking devices and all the performers wear blindfolds and walk around? So it's sort of like th thinking like the bat rather than working with recordings of the bat. So I, I've been making like little kind of surround mic arrays uh, that work in ultrasound to try to think about a, a sort of spatialized way of working with these bounces, right? So like going into an environment that's actually a human, a banal human environment, you know, a street with particular buildings that has a sort of audible sense of reflection that I'm used to, and then interrogating that space with some of these high-frequency sounds, um, and just sort of thinking about how differently I exist in that space while navigating in this sort of echolocated modality versus navigating with my eyes. So that's, I, I don't know if that's going to become a performance or if that's a, a spatialized you know, composed surround piece or, or what. Uh, and then the other angle, which relates to Pond Station, is I'm, I'm working with this, uh, this bat detector that's based on an, uh, a, a microcontroller platform called the Teensy. And there's a, a sort of forum where these really smart people, much more in-depth than I am, are um, giving this inexpensive microcontroller uh, the ability to do, like, serious... Um, capture and analysis of ultrasound. And one of the things that they've been working on is uh, real-time 
sonification techniques. So all the typical bat detector stuff, like heterodyning to lower the frequency down, um, working with sort of zero crossings and just dividing by 10 so that you get this very coarse um, kind of synthetic clicky sound. Or the, the thing that's interesting to me aesthetically, which is uh, a, a quasi real-time uh, time expansion. And this, this works because the bats are calling, you know, their calls are fast, and then there's like a moment, let's say 30 milliseconds or something, between each call where they're effectively silent, they're listening for bounces, and then they'll call, and then the silent, they'll call. So if you're um, recording that at high sampling rate, you have a moment in between the calls when you could play them back for humans to hear. And I think some commercial really good bat detectors nowadays are doing that anyway, because it's, you know, DSP-wise, it's not such a big deal. Um, but I'm trying to figure out how to kind of move that in an aesthetic direction and then provide that as a live stream of some kind. So my, my long-term goal is to work with uh, bat researchers and um, locations like public parks who might have, you know, sort of nature engagement uh, programs already and say, hey, like Pond Station kind of translates this uh, invisible, usually inaudible world and gives you sort of portal into that space uh, and maybe a little empathy towards those who live in that space, so might we do for the bats. Um, and the key to me then is making that encounter an interesting listening experience because uh, I think some of the typical sound you're getting from bat detectors is very kind of one-dimensional. You know, you sort of get mm -hmm. used to the sound of a heterodyne detector or the sound of a these, uh, I forget what the zero-crossing technique is called, but these are very, like, uh, they're very mechanical sounds. And actually, if you slow down the bats, which is much more like how they must experience their sound world anyway, since they're just operating so fast all the time, if you slow down the bats to kind of rescale it to our time scale, then that, I think, is a really powerful listening moment. And for me, that sort of listening moment is is like the crux of the whole thing. You know, like, that's that's where I find myself... Um, getting lost and that 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 sort of being arrested by the sound is is a sort of powerful tool either for activism and empathy or aesthetics and art production whatever so i'm i'm sort of imagining and slowly chipping away at a um essentially like a sort of bat listening station that's just up on a pole somewhere live streaming and the sounds that it's live streaming are these very slightly aestheticized real-time quasi real-time bat calls so it's i'm not interested in making sort of some kind of real-time music that sonifies what's going on necessarily but i'm also aware that any um any intervention i do to make it audible is going to be a, some sort of aesthetic sonification so i might as well kind of do it right you know i might as well make it sound really engaging and and interesting while still being as true to the the vocalizations of those animals as as possible, you know, which is which I find like a really cool, fun challenge, you know, to sort of respect them and yet also be aware that I'm certainly changing everything about what they're doing in order to meet our ears somewhere in the middle. I was uh, interested in the difference between going out in a park in a field with, say, portable equipment uh, versus. Uh, 
creating something that's stationary because there's imagine there's a compromise with that that same way that uh, perhaps with pond station or any other open microphone stream uh, you know uh, tends to be more suited to a fixed location uh, as opposed to oh let's just go over here today and record over here um you know given the moment you have to kind of be more confined and i was interested in how what role that plays with bat sounds yeah i mean i would consider it sort of part of this i i, I consider it part of the the tradition in in you know music production in the sort of post cajun world of moving towards designing systems um, rather than you know nailing down every single sort of aesthetic uh, uh, choice on a, on a timeline or something like that, so for me, going out and doing like transects with a portable recorder, uh, spending time in in the space, um, listening in a variety of seasons, listening in a variety of heights, um, you know, taking those back, sort of unpacking them, both literally in the time domain and conceptually that's all the kind of pre-production that you need so that if you do build something stationary you've um chosen a site and you've chosen a method of translation that seems to sing with that site in mind you know like if you know that there's a certain body of water and and i'm definitely interested in this dialogue especially with ultrasound between anthropogenic noise if it exists and and other sounds so if you've got a full spectrum recording coming in might it be interesting to find a way of mixing some of those audible frequencies in so that it functions both as kind of a live microphone in a band limited way and then also this ultrasound translation is running you know a few seconds behind so that there is a sense that what you're listening to is not some like broadcast from mars you're listening to something that exists in our world <clears throat> just as you might exist in your world and you might look up while listening to this live stream from thousands of miles away and realize that while you're mowing the lawn, the same thing that you're listening to in this live stream is also happening above, above your head. So I, I think for me, it's all about like a sort of research phase where you're very open and very um, um, experimental and very interested in, in sort of being a sponge to whatever it is that's in that environment that's sort of triggering your interest. And then to figure out a way to synthesize um, and choose which aspects of that are important for like a broader public and that might be, you know, still there on the table in your stationary spot, whatever it is that you that you pick. So in a sense, uh, the scientific uh, research and the scientific, uh, you can say, discourse in the piece are tied in with the artistic conception of the piece. Uh, potentially, uh, I guess, when, when you realize it, um, because it requires an artistic act to make this translation that I don't think scientists haven't shown that they are interested in that um, ex uh, interpretation of the bat experience. So I'm interested in this joining of these two different worlds in your work. And, you know, as opposed to you know, artistic work being, you know, notes on a page, uh, you're, you're taking inspiration from your experiences in the environment and, and, um, not 
committing them to paper or something like that, but you're facilitating a way to experience the environment that has a different dimension to it. If I look at something like Pond Station, um, I know one of the things you were thinking about was, and which I also think about is, what are the kind of differences in approaching a work that will be based on, let's say, field recording, capture, um, composition, and then spatialization versus something that's a live stream where you're sort of metaphorically putting up your antenna and walking away and, and, and sort of letting the other parts of the piece fall as they may. And for me, with something like Pond Station and, and also with what I hope to do with some of this ultrasound work, I'm thinking of it as more of a, a sort of portal than an, an archive. So rather than think about my experience with that place, that thinking about that listening moment as a series of sort of moments to be captured, to be um, manipulated, to be, to be worked on, and I should say I also do that work too, but in this case, that's not where I wanted to go. Instead, I'm thinking more about how a live stream can put us into contact with the durations, the rhythms, the cycles of a place that are always there in all the places that we are, including ones you know full of people, right? Like you could be on the city street corner and, and it takes a while to get in touch with those durations and those rhythms as, as well. Um, but I was very interested in what I consider to be like a um, a way of listening without sort of taking ownership, a way of listening that's less related to the kind of history of photography and the gaze and the knowing that happens when you make a recording. You know, when you get something kind of in the bag and you're like, "This, I now have this. I own this. I captured it. I took it home." And I. I I'm not really sure that that my uh, I, I'm not really sure that the field recording kind of encounter is is necessarily kind of colonial and has all this baggage attached to it. I think there's a lot of more subtle ways to think about field recording. But for some of these pieces recently, I've been more and more interested in what happens when I leave behind my time expectations, the expectations of like a piece being a, a thing that has a certain duration. And instead, I just say the gesture that I'm making is one of a sort of compromise between our sense of time and the sense of time of this piece, which is why Pond Station is solar powered as well. It, the place where it lives, which is on the, the property at, at Wave Farm in upstate New York, it could theoretically, you know, we could run a trench and, and cable it up so that it's this durable, permanent fixture in this pond. The pond is not like in the middle of nowhere. It's, it's, you know, 400 feet away from a building that has Wi-Fi in it. So I'm making no like pretense that this is some remote outpost in the middle of nowhere. Uh, and in fact, when you listen to it, that you can hear cars going by, which is a whole other th thing we could talk about in terms of learning from the, from the unexpected sounds uh, of these gestures. Anyway, um, uh, so the, this whole system is solar powered because I wanted it to reflect those cycles. I wanted it to not work when the pond is essentially not working. You know, so much that goes on in the pond is, is regulated by the solar cycle um, and by the cycle across the, the year, right? So there's a sort of diurnal thing and there's an annual thing and there's all kinds of other cycles that I probably know nothing about. But I was really interested in how it, it, 
doesn't um, compromise when it comes to how it presents itself to us. Like, I'm not asking the pond to always make interesting sounds. Um, and I'm not asking the pond to define what interesting sounds are, really. Um, it's, it's much more about putting myself and anyone else who wants to listen in contact with these things that might, in, again, in this sort of classic Cajian way, might sort of open some dialogues with what I consider to be important sounds. You know, and that actually goes beyond aesthetics. One of the key things that, that I discovered in this process is a couple years after I put it in place, um, all the sound essentially stopped. And I was freaking out. And it's a very difficult piece to build. Like electronically, <laughs> there's all kinds of stuff going on. So I was like, and I live three hours away. So I was like going up and down on trains and renting cars and trying to figure out how to increase the sensitivity of the hydrophones. And, you know, it, was, it seemed to be working. Everything seemed to be working. And then we all kind of realized that there was a pond duckweed all over the surface of the pond, which had slowly, slowly engulfed the surface, blocked out all the light, and basically killed off most of the uh, vital ecosystems <laughs> that, that kept the pond, you know, living, essentially. And what I'm, what I'm live streaming is essentially the sounds of life. Some of it is gas bubbles, which is essentially the sound of decay, but most of it is invertebrates and a couple other things that I don't even know what they are, you know? So when the pond basically fell silent for an entire season, it was a real wake-up call, and it was this classic sort of Bernie Krause acoustic ecology moment, right? There's this, his, his sort of example of the, um, the selective logging in, in the woods in, in some park that I don't remember the name of, where it's like, hey... We came in, removed, you know, 50% of the trees, skyline looks beautiful, nothing changed, we're done. And then he comes back and makes a recording, you know, three years later, and it's utterly silent because everything that lived in the woods died, even though the woods still look like they're in fine shape. Same thing, right? It's like, oh, look at this beautiful blanket of green on the surface of the pond. Whoops, that blanket of green choked out every other living thing, and it's an invasive species. So the folks who run Wave Farm had to spend a huge amount of time sort of hand skimming all of this stuff off the surface. And after months of work, all of a sudden, all the sound came back. So even though I didn't explicitly design the thing to be a kind of eco-acoustic indicator, right? It wasn't, it wasn't a sort of instrumental piece in that way. I wasn't sort of saying, I'm going to analyze the amount of spectral complexity in this sound, and that will somehow be graphed to be like pond health. In the long run, it did that anyway, you know? So it, it taught me something that I sort of logically probably already knew about the way I listen to ecosystems, but it because it got me on an aesthetic level, because I listened to it and said, this just doesn't sound right, that actually created an opportunity for real physical change on this little micro level, right? Just one pond in one place and in one state in one country. Uh, but it actually changed that environment you know what i would say for the better um and now we know that we got to keep an eye on the duckweed population because at any point it might you know it might come back it's spread by water waterfowl so it was one of these sort of lessons that i that i thought i was too clever to have to be told you know like we all kind of know if we work in this space and we think about acoustic ecology we sort of lecture on these things and we think about these things we all kind of think that um you know, it's great when it works out that way, 
But here it is staring me in the face, you know, tuning in every day and thinking, why doesn't this sound the way that I, it used to? And it called us to action. Like it did the thing that you kind of hope in the textbook will actually happen with listening to the sounds of, of the world. Um, so I'm very sort of glad, I'm not glad that, that the duck, duckweed moved in, but I'm glad that this piece served um, a sort of multi, multiple functions, not just something to listen to, but something to, um, uh, it becomes a call to action as well. I was wondering if you could explain a little bit about the hydrophone. It's an underwater microphone. So uh, similar to the bat detection is that you're uncovering a layer of sound that we don't perceive. Like whenever you dunk a hydrophone in, I find it's com completely mysterious what you're listening to. Uh, it, sometimes maybe it's just the cable jiggling, but it sounds infinitely interesting um, uh, because it's, I mean, because it doesn't have a context that we relate to. But I was just wondering about your, you know, what was some of the advanced work going into using the hydrophone and your experiences with it? And, and, and did you have to, you know, tune your ears to uh, understand what you were hearing? Absolutely. Yeah, that that's a great, that that's a great topic that if you don't stop me, I'll probably talk about for the rest of the day. Um, yeah, I, I I first got involved in underwater listening from the sort of canonical 90s uh, albums that David Dunn did. Um, uh, the name, I think, is the, um, the, Emergent, the Emergent Life of the Pond, I think is what it's called. It's a famous set of recordings. He did it sort of adjacent to his work with uh, bark beetles, which were made with contact mics in, in trees out west. Um, so our ears do not really work well. Even if you stick your head in the water, you don't hear very well because there's a sort of physical impedance mismatch between the uh, air cavities behind our ear and the very heavy, incompressible form of the water. But sound does travel really well in water if you have the right kind of sensor to do it. Um, and for me, building these sensors and experimenting with them and tuning them and and thinking about them, it has become almost like a sort of luthier vocation. Um, I have now a couple of different designs for hydrophones that I use for different purposes. And uh, I have a couple commercial ones that I use as my sort of comparisons as I'm homebrewing things. And it's really interesting how different each environment is. So a, a lot of hydrophone research initially was done in the marine environment. So we're probably all familiar with the you know, recordings of whale song. Those all began by accident in the 1950s as the U.S. government was developing an underwater listening system to listen for Soviet submarines. And they, uh, an engineer named Frank Watlington was deploying this series of sensitive hydrophones in Bermuda and picked up these crazy noises that no one understood, which were eventually to be pressed onto the, the biggest nature recording album ever sold, the Songs of the Humpback Whale. And I was very influenced by these sort of processes, like how this um, technical um, tool making, right, uh, can lead you down a road where you actually make really surprising discoveries that will eventually end in like changing empathy, right? Like in terms of whales, it was, a, it was the turning point that ended the whaling industry. No one cared about whales until they heard them sing. And then all of a sudden it was like, oh my gosh, they're just like us. 
stop you know harpooning them all the time. So uh, part of my interest in building my own gear to find these sounds is in coming up with discoveries like that because I really feel like that you mentioned like you know you put the thing into the water and you don't know what you're really listening to. I love that. I love not knowing what I'm listening to. This is the the classic sort of acousmatic listening experience. You know the the classic sort of musique concrète uh, dream of like plopping something into the world and having no preconceived notion of what it is, which for me is like a a serious kind of almost act of activism because I need to remind myself that I don't really know what anything is. And so if I spend a lot of time listening to things and not approaching them with this sort of totalizing gaze of vision, right? Not saying like, oh, I see that person walking down the street. So somehow subconsciously I know about them. I know about their class and their race and all these other things that that like I really don't know, but it's really hard to remind myself how little I know. But with these acousmatic listening situations where I'm sort of listening uh, through expanded devices of some kind, uh, it's really easy to remember how incomplete your knowledge is and that you can listen and you can become close and you can be affected on an emotional level and an aesthetic level by sounds um, that without even imagining what the sources are. Because at some point, you just don't care anymore. You're just listening to the sounds. And so you can build this sort of affective connection to a body of water, a tree, a street sign, whatever it is that, that you're sort of probing with your microphones. Um, and at the same time, you, you're, uh, you're aware of how you're, you're just one listening subject. And this thing, whatever it is, human, uh, objects, bugs, right, these, these things... Um, that they're also listening, right? And they're listening with very different ears than, than we are. So essentially, the hydrophones are like um, piezo contact microphones with a little air gap inside of them. And based on the materials you use and the stiffness of different things, they'll have very different frequency responses. So the ones that I use for the pond are orders of magnitude more sensitive than the most of the commercial ones. Because most commercial hydrophones are designed to be pretty linear in their frequency response um, because, you know, you want things to sound as close to what they really are as possible. But in the pond, we're dealing with really, really small signals, uh, especially because we're not moving around in this case. So we're just stuck with whatever uh, happens to be near the, the hydrophones. Um, so I have a little preamp that I build it's actually embedded inside the head of the hydrophone so that it doesn't pick up like radio signals and there's no loss from the cables and all that kind of stuff. And that pre-amplified signal, which is incredibly hot, like it has almost no dynamic range. If you listen to, um, if you listen long enough, you'll hear what sounds like little bubbles or something coming up and popping. And they're usually horribly distorted. So a, a sound as as subtle as the popping of a bubble on the surface of the water is enough to clip that preamp because the gain is so maxed out all the time in order to capture what I consider to be the more interesting aesthetic sounds, right? So we're getting immediately back into like artistic decision-making. The engineering and the artistic decision-making are all part of the same thing. I wanted to focus on mostly these invertebrate sounds which needed tremendous gain. So I just had to kind of deal with the fact that some other noises in there are going to be off the charts in terms of, uh, you know, clipping and, and distortion. Um, 
also everything is running through a compressor so uh for instance when it rains you can imagine you know if each little bubble that hits the surface is going to distort the pre there's also a compressor downstream of that so that when it rains or when it's a really windy day or when the station is like thrashing back and forth and there's cable noise it doesn't just clip the entire live streaming system which is downstream so basically it's um it's a sort of autonomous system that's floating in the pond. It's battery powered, and it's sending a analog radio link from there to a nearby building, where it gets received. And then that building has a Raspberry Pi, which has um, a connection to the Locus Sonus sound map, as well as Wavefarm's uh, sort of built-in streaming server. And that's how it gets out to the to the world. And it, I see. It's, so it's not through the Wi-Fi directly, then. Right. Yeah. It it could have been, but the I I wanted to keep as much of the digital stuff out of the pond as possible, <laughs> uh, and the Raspberry Pi draws a, a decent amount of current, and these other systems that I've built, which are really just preamps and mixers and stuff, and um, and the radio transmitter, they draw relatively little current, which makes it much more durable out there in the solar environment you know it's it's a little overbuilt in that sense so even if it's cloudy for three days in a row you'll still get it'll still turn on and it'll still try its best to to transmit yeah um it also has a sort of telemetry system where it's transmitting on a separate radio a little blast of information every 30 seconds or so about the state of the battery this the amount of solar that it's detecting um and that's really just uh, troubleshooting information because over the years, it's been through a lot out there, freezing and thawing. The hydrophones get flooded occasionally. Uh, there was a beaver who moved into the pond who just snipped right through the hydrophone cables one winter. Uh, so that, that there, it's been through a lot. It has basically sunk once, which was unfortunate. Um, so I, I've learned a lot about ruggedizing these... Um, these very um you know finicky electronic systems and it's all done on like a sort of micro budget so it's all homebrew it's not like i can just order a replacement so it's 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 um i as much as i am sort of anxious all the time about whether the thing's actually going to turn on every morning i also really like that i have to attend to it at least on a sort of conceptual level it means that again like similar to that that duckweed problem my attention to the pond is has been kind of focused through this prism of the sculpture the device that's sitting on top of that pond so i've been able to see it in the snow i've been able to see it in the high summer i've i've sort of gotten to have a in-person listening moment with this ecosystem um and I've been forced to, right? Because this this thing needs my attention. You know, like this this very ephemeral, fragile intervention that I've made into this very permanent space of a pond. It's the fragility of that technology sometimes that leads me back to that pond, where I then have all these other sort of knock-on effects. You know, like I uh, I I bring my field recording gear when I'm there and hear this crazy buzzing sound and follow it around with the microphones and realize that there's there's a set of hummingbirds on the top of this this tree that I have never seen before and I wouldn't have been in that kind of very active listening posture 
if it wasn't for the fact that some dumb thing broke on Pawn Station and I had to, you know, get get out of my Brooklyn apartment and, <laughs> and get get to the pond. Uh, you mentioned uh, earlier you were talking about the uh, time window of the you know the that live streaming is not uh, an event based thing it's it's time unfolding on its own natural curve i in some ways uh live streaming a soundscape could be seen as being uh more predatory than recording because you're collecting from it all the time and uh and but but the way you described it, it felt uh, more of a kind of passive reception of of things, and I, I was just interested in that difference between collecting and and uh, existing. Yeah, I think it's 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 something that I think about a lot. Um, I'm I'm sort of indebted in many ways to the folks, uh, the Sound Camp folks in the UK who put together Reve and really started um, talking, uh, I've spent some time in person talking to Grant Smith about these exact questions, who's one of the uh, Reve, uh, one of the Sound Camp folks. And it's, um, it's tremendously, uh, I guess, transformative to me to imagine live streaming in this way, in this open way, thinking of it as a resource. In a, in a moment where surveillance is so pervasive in the world, right? Like digital surveillance. So that the same sort of internet that is um, working towards this sort of uh, idea of a shared acoustic commons, a, a set of these kind of portals into other soundscapes around the world, that that same sort of uh, network is also being used so oppressively around the world in so many different ways. It seems important to me to kind of claw back some of that, right? To, to make a positive gesture. Um, also, I'm not on any kind of social media. I've chosen to abstain from most of the kind of surveillance economy as I consider it. And so I make very, I make very small pointed, clear um, engagements with that idea of live streaming and, and surveillance. So for instance, I, I don't think I would put up a live stream in my backyard or anything like that. I live in a very tight urban space where the privacy of others would be impossible to to respect if I, uh, if I did a live stream like that. But some of the folks all over the world who are doing these streams have come up with wonderful uh, compromises that they have to think about, right? Maybe it's on a rooftop. Maybe it's in... Um, uh, maybe you have a different kind of living arrangement, right? You you have a space where most of the time the sounds that you're listening to um, would be something that that uh, the humans around you have consented to. Um, so I, I think it's it's a great friction. I think it's it's uh, to me it's been a way of thinking how to embrace that um, that world of the real time and take back the creepiness. And think of it much more as a gesture of sharing and much less as a gesture of, let's say, monitoring or eavesdropping. Um, one thing that I always think about, you know, if you look at like Soundwalk practice, Janet Cardiff um, has this sort of like refrain that I've heard her say multiple times about how 
the act of walking, you've got sort of one foot in the future and one foot in the past, and you're in this ever-unfolding present. And even though her work is almost always related to things that are recorded and, and there's, there's a relationship to time there that's very different than live streaming, still, that walking moment, that suspension, right, between, like, these two footfalls, like a foot going down in front of you and a foot coming up behind you, we're caught in that moment when we're, when we're live streaming. I remember in the U.S., National Public Radio would do a campaign probably 10 years ago where they would talk about, like, driveway moments. They were like, you know, like there's some story on the radio that's so compelling that you've already come home from work and you're sitting in the driveway in the car, but, <laughs> but you're still idling because you're waiting for the story to end and you don't want to get up and leave. And I, I, and I've felt that before in a variety of different ways, but I realized that right now in the kind of archive mentality of the modern internet, that's gone, you know, because any time that you miss something, this is something that's kind of interesting in the in the COVID era. If we look back on that, almost any time that you miss something that was ostensibly live, there is this background expectation that it was perfectly archived and that you can just watch it later, or you can just listen to it later, or you can just engage with it later. It doesn't have the urgency of broadcast. And one thing that I grew up doing is listening to shortwave radio, and sort of cruising around the different bands, trying to find something, right? And, and a lot of stumble across these very mechanical signals, a lot of telemetry is broadcast on these shortwave frequencies. And when you'd hear a human voice, it would be this amazing thing because you knew that at least conceptually, that was coming out of a microphone, or sorry, that was being spoken into a microphone, potentially on the other side of the world and bouncing all over the place on the, the ionosphere and ended up in my ears and there was something so vital about that broadcast moment. And I think even, and it doesn't necessarily have to be that very one-to-many broadcasting that we're all used to. I think ham radio operators have their own version of this that's unrelated to broadcasting. And it's much more about personal connections between small groups and individuals. But still, it's, it's the liveness of it. It's the knowledge that on the other end of this fragile link, uh, something is happening right now, and there's no expectation that anyone's made a recording of it. And if you miss it right now, it's gone, you know. And and I do, you know, I do run a recorder sometimes, and I'll I'll listen, I'll make a sort of best of of Pond Station. I'm not, you know, I have no sort of dogma that would prevent me from wanting to record the interesting things that I hear. But at the same time, the way that I tend to engage with it uh, is as this slow system. And I learn its rhythms. And when I hear a change, it's a change that's happening right now. And that sort of attentiveness to change is a way of listening that I think is really interesting. You know, and I, I know that's probably something that the, the SoundCamp folks would also agree with, that one thing about these live streams is that they are witness. They are witness to something that changes and they're a, uh, a sort of antidote to the belief that the things around us are static and that we're helpless to change them. You know, I mean, like um, the pond station is constantly hearing traffic noise of cars going by. But what happens in some moment when the cars get quieter or the streets aren't there or there's no oil left <laughs> or something, right? Like it's going to hear changes that have nothing explicitly intended by me. You know, it's not like, 
it's not my gesture. I'm not hitting the drum head. I'm not blowing through the clarinet. Um, it is it is witnessing changes that are bigger than me, and that I'm sort of um, happy to listen to through it. And I think that's essential in the live streaming mm -hmm. mentality. Yeah, I think that's a really nice perspective. I'm glad you articulated that because uh, there is a sort of level of discomfort, um, perhaps, with um, uh, the, the that it can be um, perhaps confused with surveillance, uh, or there's a fine line between you know between the open microphone and surveillance, and and um, and I think that idea of uh, witnessing a, a larger you know uh, unfolding of events uh, beyond yourself. Is a nice way to think of it, and that it is there in happening there in that moment. Yeah, and I mean it, that doesn't that doesn't eliminate the possible creepiness too. I mean, I think it is it is a question that we need to be asking each other, you know, all the time, right? I I, I think there are definite ethical issues with any kind of open. Um, streaming like that, you know, you you sort of develop a tool, and you need to be thinking ahead a little bit to how that might be used in ways that you didn't intend. Um, so yeah, I think these are definitely healthy conversations to have, and I I think I would feel somewhat I I I think I do feel somewhat insulated from that because the work that I tend to be streaming is relatively. A difficult for humans to to appear in you know like they're if you yell near pod station we'll hear you <laughs> but you gotta really you gotta try you know like i i can hear if someone's cutting the grass by the pond i can hear the lawnmower go by no problem but i'm not you know listening over your shoulder as you walk in the woods and live streaming it out to the world you are listening to wgxc acre 90.7 fm you've been listening to a special edition of making waves focusing on open microphone live streams by Zach Poff and later in the show from Mike Bullock. But I mean, another angle there that I think is important, which gets back maybe to Reve and, and SoundCamp is also the notion of live streaming a performance is a kind of a different adjacent set of possibilities that I really am fascinated by. So that similar to, I mean, if you go all the way back to like Hildegard Vesterkamp, early early days of some of these like fm radio sound walks that she was doing in vancouver i think on the the local station there in the what was that in the mid-70s maybe they they're things that um had already at that time a really strong relationship to real timeness right to live streaming that even if it was recorded and delayed the notion that this is happening in a place that you can get to and that if you wanted to follow in her footsteps, you could. Um, and that it's designed for a community that is expected to be capable of making it to these places rather than streaming across the world. You know, these are all wonderful kind of shades of gray, the, the big spectrum of live streaming and and engagement, you know, with, with whoever your audiences are. So, you know, alongside of the, the sort of global Reve uh, spin of the earth, there are also all of these projects for the last couple of years, some of which were, um, you know, I mean, all of which were live streams of one sort or another. So then you're sort of tuning into something that um, is performative in, and could have a very kind of traditional musical component. It could be a sound walk. It could be all of these different sort of modalities. 
Um, but the thing that ties them all together as a sort of platform of, of interest there is their real timeness. And that's another, that's a thing I haven't really dealt with in my work at all, but I'm more and more fascinated by the possibilities of this ephemeral performance. You know, I mean, just think about dancers. They've lived their whole lives with this, this problem, right? Their work is in their bodies. And in some crucial way, uh, with a couple of exceptions, the entire sort of media revolution of the 20th century didn't really help them. You know, like you still have to be there. You still have to be doing the stuff in your skin in order to make this art actually happen. It's not something you can bottle up and, and store away. Um, so I'm kind of interested in how people who work with media and sound can regain a little bit of that ephemerality and say this performance is just happening and you can tune into it or not. And when it's done, it's done. We don't, you know, we might record it, but that's not really the point, you know. Um, so I, I'm more and more thinking along those lines as well. And I think I've learned a lot about those possibilities by the work that those folks have done. Yeah, I think there's a, there's a, a theater to the moment that if it's only available in that moment, that uh, is not there with recordings. That's a great way of putting it. Yeah, it is, it is a sort of, sort of theater. Oh, just one other thing I wanted to, to think about here, just in maybe in concluding a little bit about Pond Station, is I, I really feel like it has changed my listening when it comes to how I kind of map empathy, how I feel towards others. You know, I mean, something as simple as sharing some of these sounds with folks and they say, what is this? And even, even folks who... Um, are are very used to listening to challenging you know challenging music um they're familiar with the sort of soundscape of the avant-garde as it already exists you know back into history um people and me are shocked by how polyrhythmic and complex these soundscapes are under the water there's something about how an aesthetic experience with these creatures can engender empathy, right? You, you may think that these bugs look gross, right? You may um, swat them off of you when you're actually there walking in the pond. But just like the whale on the other end of this like size spectrum, these little things, which are in plenty of trouble, just like the whale, right? The insect populations in general declining precipitously in the last you know, 30 years or so, um, I do feel, and I don't think it's too sort of naive or corny to say it, I do feel that listening to them and giving them the space, giving them the respect and the time in my sort of listening encounters with them is it's possible to sort of move the needle on empathy with that wider world in the same way that the same sort of discoveries happened with, with whales, you know, in the generations before me. I often go back to thinking about Stephen Feld and the sort of acoustomological way of thinking about listening and about sound. And I, I always try to challenge myself to complicate my listening along those lines, right? To, to think about the things that I hear as indicators of relationships that I might not be able to observe simply with my eyes, you know, things that, um, things that may have uh, uh, 
relationships with the world around me that might have framed my culture or other cultures and that um, have sort of like washed out of the storytelling and the, the traditions that I grew up with, um, but which I may be able to understand through the process of listening in a way that's you know, impossible to express in words, impossible to express in images or, or any other way. So that, that sort of listening encounter is one that I feel like I'll spend a lifetime unpacking in one way or another. <laughs> That was Zach Poff in conversation, talking about the pond station and uh, recording and transmitting the sounds of bats. You're on Making Waves. Next is Mike Bullock, talking about the live stream that he does from his home in Florence, Massachusetts. What prompted your interest in running an open microphone live stream? I, I started with this when I I'd heard about it and I was aware of Locus Sonus. Uh, and I checked out streams there occasionally. Um, what got me um, started on it was uh, actually went to a workshop at um, in France. Uh, I think this is where it started um, at Camp in, this, uh, in the in the Pyrenees in France. And it was a workshop on ecoacoustics, and one of the guest artists there was um, actually runs an organization called uh, called Sound Camp which I think you know about, well, it was Grant. It was Grant Smith. Uh, was one of the people there. The, the workshop was, it was, it was based on, uh, it was Leah Barclay and Anaya Lockwood were, the, uh, were the, the guest artists there, the main guest artists, but they brought, uh, they brought Grant along um, to talk about some of his projects uh, with streaming. And it's, you know, he's, you know, he's very much involved in that. And um, being in touch with Grant, I, I, uh, he sent me a, a box. He sent me a, a, a stream box, one of his stream box designs, um, in parts that I could assemble myself, uh, which was an interesting thing to sort of throw myself into. I'd never built a microphone before. And then here I was building two phantom-powered uh, double capsule microphones that both came out. And I was really surprised. I was delighted that I didn't ruin these capsules. I'd never made a mic before. Um, and, uh, so I was really, I was, I was very proud of them. I think they sound good. Uh, so that's where that came from. Uh, and that got me, I set that up and joined the Locus Sonus. And that is from there sort of sprung into a number of other ideas about, uh, streaming sound from outside and recording sound outside. I'd been doing field recording already, um, from, from my own work, uh, as a composer. And since then it sort of just increased my interest in field recording, uh, for my own work and also for, uh, for research. I'm not a researcher myself, but I've been started to, uh, interface with some, uh, some scientific researchers through this involvement with, uh, sound camp adjacent activities and through Reveille. And so, you know, obviously this, getting this sound, uh, getting the stream box and communicating with Grant connected me with uh, the Reve event, which I'm sure you, I know you were talking with uh, the sound camp people about. Uh, and that's also gotten me interested in other, in other activities adjacent to that, like a, a, a bat listening. I've host, hosted a couple of um, events related to uh, bat sound on the Reve events. Is that something that you're still fo- uh, that you're focusing on in in your stream or in other recording activities? That uh, more in the recording activities. I haven't done a stream with um, bat directly with bat sounds yet. We did try this past reveille, um, 
we try to uh, actually I and this uh, this researcher that I work with in the area, um, she's a biologist and and, um, and and a bad researcher, so she has the science end of it, and uh, I bring the microphones, uh, and she also brings a microphone. But um, uh, she and I went to uh, Massachusetts Arcadia uh, at Mass Audubon Arcadia Wildlife Sanctuary to try to uh, bring bats in real time into the Reve stream. Well, the bats showed up and flew around for us for a bit, and right at 8.30 uh, Eastern time, uh, as soon as it was time to start the stream, the bats went away. So we ended up sitting outside in kind of chilly weather, but having a great time talking about bats for, you know, for about an hour and answering people's questions. So we tried to get bats on the stream. She did bring some, um, Aaron, her name is Aaron Reggiano. She did bring some samples of bats, uh, that we played, uh, that she played samples and we, and, and talked about that some more. Um, my hope is to be able to integrate, uh, integrate bat detectors into my stream box, um, in a way that will be sort of reliable, so I could maybe as bat, as the bats get busier around here soon, uh, in May and June, I'll be able to maybe have an event, a streaming event that I can announce where people can tune in and listen specifically to uh, listen to these uh, sort of the heterodyne bat translators. Um, perhaps maybe mixing. My intention is to get that and mix it with the live sound, uh, so that people can get a sense of the bat, you know, the bat activity in real time and the more familiar uh, human hearing range sounds like uh, the wood frog, uh, which we get a lot of around here or, you know, late, you know, later evening birds like late robins and so forth. With Reve happening in the dawn, uh, do you find that, you know, you're in that environment all the time? Are there favorite times of the day or year that that you particularly like, or well, we get a lot of um, and there's there's a little patch of woods behind our house. And there's a there's a neighbor back there, but there's a little strip of woods back there, um, and uh, the birds are. I mean, considering it's not a very deep patch, it's not really even woods. It's just a stand of trees. Uh, the birds are very abundant there, and um, don't seem to mind us at all if we go out there with our microphones. They're not they're not spooked by us. Uh, that's something that's been very interesting for me to to see how the animals are not spooked by us nearly as easily as you know. In, and when we were in the city, you know, city animals, some of them were very easily spooked, like pigeons, um, and some of them were would just sort of come to you and expect food. But the birds here, a lot of the times, until you get really close, don't seem to care that you're there, um, unless you're late filling the bird feeder, and then the chickadees will tell you that you're late. Uh, they'll, they'll get in a tree sort of near you. It's like I've had a chickadee sit in a tree like two feet away from me and 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 sing. He's probably maybe warning his fellow chickadees, but to me it kind of felt like he was sort of lecturing me that I was in his way. Uh, <laughs> but it's, it's interesting to me how much the birds don't – are not too troubled by me if I don't get too close. Um, and like so in the morning for the dawn chorus, we'll go out there and record – uh, occasionally, and it's just a matter of we'll we'll walk out. My wife and I will just walk out there with recorders and leave the recorders out. And sometimes I'll sit out there, and it doesn't seem to uh, affect their activity at all. They'll just keep going in the trees above me. And it's something else that I really enjoy about recording bats. 
uh, the bats really don't seem to care about you at all when you're out there because they're busy in their own range. Uh, they're dealing with their own thing. They don't seem to be bothered by human activity uh, around where I am. And in fact, I, I know from talking to, to bat researchers and people with more experience with this, uh, that bats in urban settings will, will just you know, fly down and pick flies off your clothes. Uh, and you won't even notice they're doing it. They're really, they're not, there's a lot of things that humans do that are, uh, that are a problem and, and dangerous to bats. But the bats, but aside from that, the bats don't act like they're really troubled by us at all. They're just, they go about their business. Um, and with the difference between uh, field recording and, li- and the live stream of the open microphone, your microphone presumably has to stay in a fixed place for the live stream, whereas with the recorder, it's all sort of small and battery powered and you can go wherever you can go on in your feet. Um, so I was interested in that difference of um, the challenges of choosing a location and and uh, how you um, how you negotiated uh, that limitation. Sure. It's, uh, I've moved the stream box a few times uh, just around our property here. Um, what's allowed me to do that is I, the whole system is in a waterproof box and uh, it runs with a, a Raspberry Pi in a box. And the Raspberry Pi can transmit data over an Ethernet cable but can also receive power over the Ethernet. Um, so it's a so I'm able to just run a single Ethernet cable out of my house to this box. And you can get very, very long, uh, completely flat Ethernet cables that just close up in your door or your window uh, that I've, I've had running through my, my door for you know, all through the winter, all through February when it gets down you know, below freezing for a long time. Hasn't been a problem yet. The only time it was a problem was when I, I hit one with my snowblower and it, um, it tore up the <laughs> cable <laughs> And kind of messed up the snowblower. Uh, <laughs> so it's been remarkably well performing just, you know, these very long, flat Ethernet cables. I have one on there now that I think is 100 feet. And that's allowed me to take the stream box pretty far from my back door. Um, so I do have some flexibility on that. Um, I don't have, uh, the, the next step would be a stream box that is uh, self-contained and wireless with, maybe a solar power source, and there are people who have, are developing those things. Um, but it, it does give me a certain amount of flexibility, which is, which is pretty good. Um, but also, I do want to be able to leave it on for long periods, and I need it to be weatherproof. So it's in a weatherproof box, but that limits a little bit my ability to look like the choice of microphone. Um, I can plug in other microphones, but then weather, you know, weatherproofness becomes compromised usually. Um, for a while, I had my stream box running with two other microphones that I was able to uh, magnetically clip to either side of a, um, a maple bucket as we were getting maple sap out of a tree on our property. And that was really popular. Uh, I put that up and I got a lot of responses on the internet from that. Um, and uh, I took that down eventually as the maple, as the sap slowed down and stopped. Uh, but it was interesting to be able to sort of experiment with that a little bit. Um, and have a little bit of flexibility and be able to get something that was very, very characteristic and regional. You know, because this is like, I'm, I'm in, you know, I'm in New England and this is like a very regional thing to do. And it was also an excuse to start tapping sap, which we'd never done before. 
So it, it just gives you these opportunities to interface with your world differently that I wouldn't have thought of necessarily with, with field recording. Um, it didn't, that didn't necessarily occur to me. Um, field recording with battery powered devices is, a uh, you know, it gives you a lot more flexibility, but, um, it doesn't, uh, have that immediacy of just, you know, being available and having occasional hearing from people who've just tuned in to your stream, someone in like the UK, it's the afternoon there, but they know it's morning where I am and they want to hear a dawn chorus. They, they listen to my, you know, my, my North American birds and, and the dawn. So the, in a sense, these aren't, these live streams are not just going out into a vacuum then. There is a public interaction that, that's uh, not the same for, say, making your music. I mean, are you thinking of an audience when you place uh, the mic uh, on your property and uh, different positions, I mean, uh, and based on their feedback? Is there some kind of interaction that way? I, I don't really think of that so much because... I probably would if I got a lot of feedback, if I got regular feedback, but the feedback is a little more sporadic, which is, which is okay. So sometimes it can feel like you're just doing it for your own amusement, um, which is fine. But because uh, we do every morning, actually, we uh, wake up and my wife wakes up before I do and she puts the stream on on her phone and listens to our own stream. So that because where we have breakfast is, you know, a place in the house where we can't necessarily hear it especially when the weather's colder we're not opening the windows so it really does work for our own entertainment we get to hear what's happening outside uh so that's that's pretty great it gets listened to regularly by us um so i don't really so i think of us as actually as a as, as an audience uh what we want to listen to uh but knowing that occasionally i'll someone will check in uh with me and just mention that they've been listening to my stream uh, which is which is pretty great, and something I like about it, like versus field recording, uh, composing from field recording, or just uh, you know making field recordings, um, which is like more, it's it's more immediate in that it's not a there's no um, there's no ex, there's no expectation on yourself to make a finished product. Uh, to make a complete thing with a beginning or, or an end. It's just the lens into what is happening in your area. Um, I do think about also, uh, I do think a bit about issues of privacy with the stream, um, our own privacy. So when I'm out there and out back, I have to, you know, be careful that I don't like, you know, say anything, <laughs> talking to myself or something. I've got to be aware of what I'm saying. Um, but And also, I'm not... Our neighbors are far enough away. They don't make much sound. I don't really worry about that too much. But nonetheless, it's still, you know, there's an, there are some ears out there in the yard, and they don't, uh, and and you know, it's just like the, the the whole world can listen to the neighborhood. Um, so I I don't let that I haven't let that stop me. But it's a thing that I, that I'm trying to be aware of. It's a kind of a tiptoeing point, I guess. Right. It's for some people, for other people, I've, when reading like, discussion groups about streams, um, that they, they have that as a, a concern. Like maybe the neighbor will say something, like the neighbor won't be very happy with that. Or they'll be hearing something from the neighbors and they'll start to realize that they're not comfortable with streaming the neighbor to, you know, to that degree. Uh, and um, yeah, so these are, these are all really real concerns. You know, you don't know what's happening through the middle of the night. You don't know. Um, you don't know who's listening, but, it, but you know, the, the, the audience 
on something like Locusonus is probably so specialized most of the time that it's mostly other people like yourself, you know, like like ourselves who are interested in in hearing Don choruses and and so forth. It's probably not uh, the NSA or or someone trying to maybe like trying to get some saleable personal data that they can you know that they can sell to an advertiser or something. It's that's probably not a real concern. It's not like the internet. <laughs> I was wondering what the, some of the differences are with this activity versus having a webcam, uh, you know, the kind of bird feeder webcams that you see out there on, on YouTube and things like that. How is, how is this different? I mean, you say you had a trail cam on your property, but I mean, if you were streaming this in video, what, how do you think this would be different? Um, well, yeah, the trail camera that I have is, uh, it's not streaming. It just records, uh, it's motion activated. So it just records. Um, I probably wouldn't, fun, fun, funnily enough, I probably wouldn't feel so comfortable with a streaming video camera. Uh, though I'm, I'm looking at things like the bird buddy, um, to be able to watch birds at a feeder, uh, which would be really fun. But, um, it would depend. I mean, I think a lot of it depends so much on the, uh, on where it's pointing. And that's more true with cameras than with microphones, since microphones are generally pointing everywhere at once, or almost everywhere at once. Um, so it's uh, whereas a camera is kind of pointing at somebody or at at something. Um, yeah, that's a that's a, I probably wouldn't want something like that up all the time, um, just because uh, I feel like sound is enough. And uh, I'm already just slightly self-conscious of the stream outside when I go outside as it is. A video stream, I would be much more self-conscious about that. And uh, that would, more, for me, for whatever reason, would feel a little bit more like a compromise of, you know, potential compromise of neighbor's privacy and my own privacy. Um, maybe it's not that much more of a compromise, but it just feels a little bit more, feel, it would feel a little bit more invasive um, and then also on a practical level, most of the sounds on my stream box that are interesting are bird sounds and a camera, unless it's pointed right at a bird feeder is not going to, not going to get, not going to give you the, not going to give you a, a dawn chorus, for example, um, visually mm -hmm. just, just through the sound. Yeah. Yeah. This is something that seems to be specific to the microphone and, Although the microphone experience is perhaps limited in terms of capturing the spatial experience, but there's something I think about that listening that is uh, different than when we were listening outside, and I was wondering if you had thoughts about that. It is different. Um, I think a lot of what's different in terms of the spatial experience um, with the with the, listening to the stream is. Um, it's, you know, it's a pair of, it's a pair of omnidirectional microphones, uh, arranged on something that's a little bit bigger than a head, but, uh, also it's compressed. Uh, the stream is compressed. Um, with Locus Sonus, you can use either an Aug Vorbis stream or an MP3 stream. And I use an MP3 stream because it's more universally adaptable to platforms. Um, it's more accessible. It's accessible to all browsers. Uh, even though... Uh, I've been told that Aug Vorbis streams are a little better sounding compression. But the, the fact of the compression removes some of the spatial information, of course. Um, so that, takes, that can take things away a bit. Um, but you still have 
the option to so position the way you can position microphones in certain ways that you can't position your head that can give you interesting spatial effects. Like right now, my stream box is right below a house finch nest, and um, and so when the ha and the the babies recently hatched, uh, they just had a hatch of you know like three or four baby house finches. So those are much closer when those when they start calling. Uh, they're much closer. You get this very exaggerated depth of field, these extremely close house finches. Um, and that's something that you can't really do in person because you can't sit under the nest. They're gonna, they'll fly away. So you get that, you get the advantage of that a little bit. Um, and then we often find ourselves just running to the window when we hear something really close in case it's the babies or like there's a, we still haven't figured out where this one particular tufted titmouse sits really close to the box. But, you know, that one's very loud. We don't know where he goes. So it's an interesting mystery uh, that you get to solve. Um, but, you know, you don't, get, you don't get nearly the spatial resolution that you get sitting outside uh, where you can, you know, you, you can actually sort of feel it, feel the trees sort of, you know, the trees wrap around just a little bit and you can feel that sound environment wrapping around. How have you found your r relationship to the wildlife around you has changed since you started streaming. I definitely know more about it now because um, we're constantly looking up uh, bird sounds and, um, and you know, running to the window to look at what we're hearing and finding out about the birds. Um, that's also for a while when we had bird feeders up in the winter, um, I had a pair of microphones attached to one of the bird feeders and just running that to a recorder. And so that would you know, prompt me to look up more about the birds. Um, but yeah, I, I definitely feel like I, I, I know, I know more species now. Uh, I know more about their activities and their sort of seasonal cycles and, um, and their, and their daily cycles. So I feel like it's, it's especially specifically with birds. Um, it's just been sort of an encouragement and, a facilitator for, um, for teaching myself a lot of, a lot about these creatures and how they, and sort of how they are in the human world. Like when they when they quiet down because of maybe a human sound, or when they when they seem to quiet down because of because a raptor is around, maybe, um, or the fact that they don't seem to the one our birds don't seem to worry about the raptors that fly overhead. I'm not sure why that is. Maybe because the hawks and eagles avoid our property because. You know we're home to this. We're not. We're not good. You know maybe we're not good pickings. Um, it's just given me a lot to think about. So it's it's really been a it's really been a, a facilitator to uh, just to learn a lot and also to keep me thinking about my field recording activities because I can be surrounded with this uh, bird song anytime I want. Have you had any uh, response from birders from people that are? interested in birds have a, uh, this kind of thing as they have they uh, taken an interest in it um, not so much yet I, I it, it's been um, I think that would be an interesting next place to go I uh, have been reading the more I read about birds and the more I <clears throat> read about recording birds uh, the more of course I come across uh, you know birders activities and you know one of the one of the best sources of of uh, wildlife sounds in the world, of course, is the Cornell Lab, uh, Cornell Lab of Ornithology, and uh, that is that it's it almost surprises me that there's not more interest in. Uh, I don't hear more about 
interest of like serious hobby birders um, being interested in sound because there's such a because there's this deep historical overlap specifically through Cornell among other places um, that's always been interested in uh, in sound as well as the sight of the of birds. Um, it seems like this would be a really good like a, a, like streamboxes would be a great resource for serious birders uh, to be able to just like to monitor what's happening in various places and know where they need to, when they need to get the binoculars out, if they need to rush somewhere. It seems like it would be a great resource. So it'd be interesting to sort of, in, you know, integrate, uh, just to, you know, to get the birder community more aware of this sort of thing. Yeah, and I don't think they're that hard to build or construct, would you say? I mean, is it something that if you weren't an audio person, would you be able to build the the parts and everything that, that Grant sent you? The, um, it, it would help to know something about, um, I mean, like, it, to build it from the kit that he sent me. Uh, it helps to have some ability to solder. I'm, I'm, not a, uh, I'm not an artist with the soldering iron, but uh, nor am I a, a total butcher. Uh, so I am able to make these things work. Um, so um, it helps to know some of that, and it helps to have some idea, like, why the things work, why the audio equipment works. Um, on the other hand, uh, specifically referring to the SoundCamp uh, kit, you can also get it um, completely built. Uh, you can for you know for an additional fee, they can build it for you, um, and they have programs they work with schools and individuals. You know that the price is based kind of a bit on what's um, you know who's ordering it and who needs it. Uh, so you can you can get equipment like this that's already built for you, uh, and then on top of that, like doing a stream to Locus Sonus, um, you can you can use something like the stream box, but you can also use um, simpler technology. Um, if you just, if you have a, um, if you just have like an audio setup with your computer, uh, you can, you know, like a microphone that you can stick out the window, you, you can just interface it with a, with a stand. You don't need a, you, you don't necessarily need a Raspberry Pi and special programming. You just need some ability to connect to, a, a, you know, make a connection to um, a web address. Uh, and you can even do it over your phone. People, you know, very often will just have a, a stream running off of their phones just temporarily. They'll just, you know, they'll fire it up when they're in a place and can run it from anywhere uh, that they have a, a cell phone connection. And then their their stream will appear on the Locus Sonus map. So it is depending on what, um, you know, it, it's it's very, in other words, it's very accessible to be able to make something like this. And then you can, from the most accessible level, you can go up in complexity uh, and get more results, but um, you don't, but you can start on something that's as simple as just using a smartphone, which is, you know, at this point is so widespread. You can start with just your phone and the built-in microphone. And then it's, you know, it's a short step to go to something like a Zoom or one of the brands of portable recorders that can, connect to a smartphone, um, yeah, like Zoom and Tascam and a couple of others. And uh, yeah, and then you've, you've stepped up a level in terms of what the microphone can do. Um, and uh, yeah, and then now all of a sudden you're in this like, this world of like some pretty good sound uh, without a lot of, uh, without a lot of technical involvement. Or, mon or cost even, yeah. Right. 
Yeah, so I think that's great. I think the accessibility of these things is really, really important. You can go anywhere from almost free, meaning if you already have a phone, uh, which most people, which so many people do, you know, or even like a basic internet connection on a computer, almost free up to as much complexity as you want. Uh, this, you know, this, there's no ceiling to it if you've got the interest and the know-how and the resources, but just being involved is like a very, very, very low bar to entry. And I think that's brilliant and very important to spread awareness. Uh, one last thing I wanted to get into, I should have got into this earlier perhaps, but uh, is um, do you see a way of incorporating the live streaming into your, into your musical practice, into your compositions? I did a performance in, um, it may have been in January, maybe it was earlier than that, a performance in Boston, and um, I collaborated with someone there, and then at the same time, uh, it was a mostly laptop-based performance for me, uh, and the, sort of the surprise element was at the end of the piece, I dialed into my stream box here, and my wife was part of the performance, and I, sent, and I secretly sent her a text at that point of the piece, and she started performing, uh, you know, using sound objects with the stream box, and then like the, you know, the sound of the, the yeah, the, the the nature around her, and uh, something about the sound she was doing uh, alerted the neighbor's dog, so the neighbor's dog became part of the, became one of the performers as well. So uh, that was a lot of fun. That was really great to like, especially to have that as a surprise, sort of funneling in this other part of the world. So yeah, I definitely would plan to keep doing that. But there's been, you know, this whole past year, there's been a lot of, you know, live, it's such a huge increase in live stream performance. Uh, I myself did a few of them, but really actually haven't done one in a long time. Um, but I did a few early on and, and have been involved in, I have an ongoing recording project with a, a friend of mine in, in Germany. And we've been sort of developing, we've been rehearsing semi-regularly. Uh, so I think that's, there's just so much more awareness of that, of how much is possible um, that I really, I'm encouraged by that. And I, and I sort of, you hear people occasionally sort of scoffing at that and saying like, oh, you know, it's, this is, this will never replace live performance. Well, you know, why would it? Of course not. Records don't replace live performance. Um, sometimes I'd rather listen to a record. So, uh, or rather make a record than, than perform live, though I do love performing live. Um, so this is another this is another way to do it. It's another method, and I really hope that it keeps growing. Even I hope that we need it less uh, because of why we needed to do it. But I hope that it keeps growing anyway. 